Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest question, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to Evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is a serial founder, educator, philanthropist, mentor, and venture capitalist who is the self-proclaimed cross between Oprah and Mary Poppins for college dropouts. Her disruptive $20 million venture fund in San Francisco offers $250,000 investments to teens and 20-something-year-olds who are dropouts, makers, hackers, and scientists who embody conviction to go against the grain of society's one path for all through college. Like the great Martin Luther who nailed his 95 thieves to the door of the church to protest the establishment of the church, saving your soul with a high-priced piece of paper, she is nailing her thesis to the doors of the education system, who are selling the paper illusion that a degree is the only way to have an extraordinary career or life. And she has an indomitable track record to prove it. In her early 20s, she started her career by saying no to the path of getting her PhD, and starting her own tutoring business, which ultimately led her to founding her own K-8 through charter school, which served over 400 students and has successfully been giving alternative education for the last 10 years. In 2010, she joined the founding architect team of the Thiel Fellowship and worked with Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal and first outside investor in Facebook, to help create a program that answered the question of what 20 people under the age of 20 could do with two years and $100,000 to build something rather than sit in a college classroom. And that has pumped up multiple million dollar founders at an age that most are going into thousand dollars of debt for student loans. She's also the visionary behind the Theo Summit series that has been attended by some 2000 young entrepreneurs. Founding her own venture fund, 1517, She has proven that this radical thesis with a portfolio of over 30 young founder startups watching small 1K idea investments turned into Series B companies and 17-year-olds starting five-person teams that scale to 400 employees and are making the best autonomous driving tech on the market. Sharing her passion for disrupting education and going against the grain, she has been featured in Bloomberg, Business Insider, Newsweek, and the New York Times has spoken for groups like Singularity University, Next Gen Summit, Praxis, and Venture Stories, and has even co-led a 50-plus person Burning Man camp. I'm honored to welcome the founder and general partner of 1517, former Thiel Fellowship Director, and a woman who has come a long way from staying in during recess to help other kids in school, Danielle Strachman. Wow, thank you so much for having me, Brandon. I I think that was the most thorough and versatile introduction <laughs> anyone hands down has ever given me. Like you win that. And I think you might win it for years to come. <laughs> like, well, wow, you got my Burning Man camp in there, the staying in school and helping the other kids to the fund. I'm like, wow, you have done, you've done your homework. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you have quite a wide variety of experiences and um, quite a story. And I'd actually like to go back and start um, when you were in grad school and deciding that, you know, you didn't want to follow neuropsychology because you weren't passionate about it. Um, And so you started that tutoring business. So tell me why, tell me why you went against the grain and had the courage to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, gosh, it seems like many lifetimes ago at this point, but it, (laughs) um, it was a really interesting time for me. I I had, um, since I was young, I mean, you mentioned staying in during recess and helping other kids with their work and stuff. I was doing that, you know, probably from fourth grade on. And so mm-hmm. I always had this sort of passion for teaching and helping. But everyone told me growing up, you know, uh, teaching is a horrible profession. Those who can't teach, um, the pay is lousy. You know, the bureaucracy is lousy. All of it's lousy. <laughs> And so I was really listening to that a lot. And even when I, I, I did go through undergrad and I was thinking about, well, do I want to study education and, and took some ed classes? Um, but I even noticed in my peer group, um, people didn't seem that interested in it. If I was saying like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, studying, you know, education or I'm in a special education class right now, like the conversation would kind of peter out really quick. Right. 
Um, but I started getting really interested in neuropsych. And what I noticed was that, you know, especially within my peer group, people get very excited. Oh, you're into neurology. Oh, you must be so smart. Oh, you <laughs> that. And actually, I, I was not a great student growing up. And so hearing mm. from other people like, oh, you must be so smart and that sort of thing. I was like, oh, I'm finally getting the kudos I always wanted. Right. Um, and so I was really going down that path. I was uh, going to be the first person in my family, uh, you know, to get a a very advanced degree. And so I was getting a lot of um, accolades from my family about going to grad school and things like that. Um, I had applied to grad school. I got into grad school. Uh, I was working at a neuropsych institute at the time. And uh, the, the the PI I worked under was excited for me to go to school too. But, um, but I had this sort of early uh, quarter life crisis, but I had mm. it at like 20 instead of 25. And, and, you know, to anybody listening, everybody goes through this. Yeah. Everybody is going to go through this moment. Sounds like, you know, maybe you have gone through this moment when you were looking at your career in architecture and saying like, what am I doing? How did Absolutely, I get here? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think that there's something important about going through that crisis is, is that I do think it's, um, it's a part of human development. Mm -hmm. And I think we go through these types of crises and in, in stages. And I don't know, I wish there was a nicer, softer way that we could go through these things where it was like, Oh, I just got on this other path. And it was easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it tends to be through sort of this crisis mode that, that we get there and we learn and we develop. But I remember um, I was reading this book. It was called uh, Zen and the art of making a living. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'm reading the, uh, another book of the authors right now, but I read this book nearing 20 years ago and uh and it really changed my life and it made me think about hmm is education the path i or sorry education seems to be the path i really want to do but i don't want to become a teacher um, i'm getting all these kudos for going into neuropsych but i noticed it wasn't i wasn't passionate about it i wasn't mm -hmm. reading books in my spare time about neurology i wasn't wanting to talk about it all the time. It was, it was something that I was good at. I was the youngest person who, uh, who interned at the neurology department and the Beth Israel at the time. Uh, I, I was teaching grad students a lot of work. It was, it was very gratifying. But when I thought about like, when I put my feet down on the, on the floor in the morning, is that what gets me pumped? And I'm super excited about, and it wasn't. So I actually turned down going to grad school um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to start a tutoring company. Uh, mm -hmm. I've always loved tutoring. And one of the thing that I've actually never thought about it this way before, but I like the intersections of things. Uh, and I think, um, that's very true in my work now. Um, but I can even see it then of that. I put together this tutoring company that would, would educate people and have that piece, but I put the neurology piece with it. Um, and so I would act, uh, often use sort of the skills that I had learned in the neurology department. I would even think about certain tests and assessments we would give people to think about how to work with like their attentional abilities or, or memory capacity and things like that um, to teach them. And so I was always sort of trying to figure out like, how can I bring things together? Um, but um but it's interesting because I felt a lot of shame about it. Like I, mm. I never told my PI at the Beth Israel that I wasn't going to go to grad school. <laughs> like I couldn't, I just couldn't, I still can't tell her. Like yeah. I'm sure at this point, you know, I could have that conversation. I'm on LinkedIn with a few of her colleagues that, you know, clearly know that I didn't end up going that route. Um, but it was a big deal and a, and a big choice. And I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing. And uh, and even later after I started the tutoring company, um, you know, I started my charter school. And when I was doing that, people said, oh, you should go back for an advanced degree in education. And, and I like, I don't know, maybe this is um, arrogant of me to say, but uh, I would always tongue in cheek say to them, you know, to write this charter school petition is 400 pages. I've already written my thesis. I'm just waiting for <laughs> someone to get me the honorary degree. Right. And, and, um, you know, and I'm still waiting for that, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's sort of like the path there of uh, of just realizing that I wasn't going to be like eating, drinking, sleeping, neuropsych or neurology yeah. and found that my passion was really with working with children um, and teaching. And so I started a tutoring company because that was the thing that I could do without a teaching credential um, and started from there. And then uh, wildly enough, when I started Innovations Academy, uh, which still runs today, we serve about 400 students and we're buying a building this year, which is very exciting. Uh, the crazy part is that uh, I'm still actually not sure if this is true now, but when I was starting the charter school, 
uh, you know, over 10 years ago, you didn't have to have a teaching degree to start a school. But what's mm. funny is I could be a director or principal, like technically director, because a principal is a, is a, uh, there's like a requirement that you have to have mm. certain degrees to be called a principal, but you could be okay. a director and it's fine. But I wasn't technically allowed to teach at my own school oh, because wow. I don't have a teaching degree, but I could start the school. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. So, so I'd felt, I'd feel like a real renegade when we'd have a teacher out and I was substituting in there and I was like, Ooh, yeah. I'm substituting at my own school that I'm not supposed to be a substitute for. Like that's kind of nutty. Um, so yeah, there's, there's this whole theme that is throughout my life of doing things you know, that I don't have necessarily a degree for, um, you know, and finding the titles that kind of work around what I want to do. Mm. Um, and the great thing about founding things is that you get to give yourself a title. It's taken me a while to come into my own as an investor and feel comfortable using that title. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm an investor. Um, you know, but because Michael and I started 1517, we get to call ourselves the general partners and, uh, we're fundraising for our second fund right now. And I think about, where we were at when we started four years ago and the knowledge we have now, I'm like, wow, those people who backed us four years ago, like they were really taking like a big risk. We've learned so much. We, we sort of, we knew what we wanted to do, but we didn't know what we were doing. Like we had to learn on the fly a ton. Um, And so, yeah, that's sort of like, I don't know. It's this interesting thing when you, when you start something, you get to, you get to naturally be at the top, but then you have to grow into the role over time. Yeah, I think um, what's important in your story, too, is this idea of following threads of curiosity. Um, yes. you, you know, you talked about you weren't reading books on neuropsychology, you weren't living, sleeping, breathing. Yeah. And um, very similarly, when I was doing architecture, like I seen yeah. like when I was in architecture school, the kids that were basically living and breathing this, reading books, buying it. And what I found was I was buying books on entrepreneurship and yeah. startups and yeah. this like, Yeah. But I didn't, in that moment, I didn't realize that. Like, it took me going through that sort of pain to, to see that. Yeah, and to, to bring the loop back on on that, like, study aspect. I remember when I started my tutoring company, and, and I am not a fast reader by any means, but I was, like, gobbling up books, and I was like, man, if I'm going to educate people, I should learn about human development, mm-hmm. and I should learn about infants, and I should start way at the beginning. And I was just reading and reading and reading and reading and taking things in and and trying to like get up to speed as fast as I could, um, you know, to be, uh, you know, the best teacher possible. Uh, and yeah, it was really interesting to see that, you know, I was waking up early in the morning before clients and whatnot, just so I could like read and, and sort of do that self-education piece. And that was not happening with what I was studying in school, but it had never, it never dawned on me until, you know, I was about to sign up for grad school and another, Another thing about grad school that sort of bothered me was I was like, gosh, like most people I know who go to grad school, you know, it's, uh, it's like seven years. Like mm-hmm. sometimes people say, oh, you can do it earlier than that. But like most of the people I knew, it was seven years before they finished their dissertation. And I was like, right. do I really want to be in my late twenties or like early thirties by the time I get my first real job? Like that seems absurd. Um, and I just, I, Yeah. I had no taste for that whatsoever. Um, So tell me about when you were joining the Teal Fellowship um, and basically you were invited to join that project and not necessarily because of the things that you learned in college, but maybe sort of the things that you learned outside of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So the Teal Fellowship story for me is really interesting. That was another lesson learned, which is, you know, if you see something, uh, that you're interested in, uh, like a program or a job or a club or like anything, um, you know, reach out and see what you can do with it. Because Mm -hmm. I had seen the Teal Fellowship launch on social media, um, like a few days before a friend of mine who was at the Teal Foundation reached out to me, but I saw the launch and I was like, wow, this thing seems really cool. It fits in with my ethos uh, of working with homeschoolers and sort of alternative education. This is so cool. But in my mind, I had put a block up and I thought, oh, they must have a staff. They must have run a pilot. Um, They must have like all their ducks in a row. And I think part of that is from uh, starting a charter school. It, at the time it was a two year process to get approved and and get those ducks in a row. And it's very formal and you have to run um, sort of pilots and you need to sort of prove out that what you're going to do is going to work and all this stuff. And so I got a phone call from a friend who worked at the foundation and I had done a little bit of work with her before. And she said, Hey, you've got to get over here. 
the foundations lost their mind. They just launched <laughs> this program. They have nobody running it. You'd be perfect for this. I was mm-hmm. like, what? I was like, who does that? Who starts something and doesn't have it all mapped out? Right. Um, and sometimes that's someone like Peter Thiel. Yeah. Um, and so it was great to come in uh, on a blank slate because having started my own businesses before, and I also grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, I never wanted to really like take orders and build somebody else's dream. I always mm-hmm. wanted to make it my own. And so coming on board and, and being able to bring my homeschooling sort of philosophy and ethos to the program and um, build things out and iterate over time. One thing that's nice about a cyclical program where it's once a year is that every year it feels like spring cleaning and you're like, oh, that thing we did last Ooh, year. Yeah doing that but we're going to bring in this new piece and we're going to try this and see how this works so we always got to iterate which was wonderful um yeah and and there were just so many learnings working with those young people and uh one of the jokes in my career is that my definition of a young person is always about 20 years younger than i am <laughs> uh, and so when i'm like 60 i'll be like those 40 year olds yeah. those, they need some help um but um but yeah so it's it's just a pleasure uh to work with young, passionate people. I tell people I get to drink from the fountain of youth every day. Mm. Um, and, uh, as a side note, actually, I very rarely use the word kids. I actually find it to be very disrespectful. Uh, and I wish people wouldn't, wouldn't use it so much, especially with people who are like teenagers and above. Yeah. I have, like strong views on these things. Um, so like tongue in cheek, I'll use it, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I have a lot of reverence for the people that I get to work with. Yeah. So why start your own fund as opposed to maybe, <laughs> maybe starting like a college or a university because you'd already started a school before. Yep. Yep. Well, let's see. So the school I started is both uh, the best and the most challenging thing I've ever Mm. done. Um, You know, and one of the things I say is like, I wouldn't wish school principalship on anybody. (laughs) Um, It is both amazing, but just so, so difficult because you're, you're especially in the public sector, you're working with people who maybe want to be there for some reasons, um, Mm -hmm. but aren't fully on board with your philosophy, for example. Um, And I also found the rigid structure of school, even just for myself of like, oh, I have to be here at 8am every day. And at the earliest, I'll maybe leave at 8pm. And, and I don't know, for someone who has that sort of entrepreneurial mindset and a bit you know, a touch, maybe more of a touch of like an ADD, ADHD (laughs) mindset, doing, being in the same place every day was really hard for me. Um, And so people have asked me if I would start another school again. Um, I don't think anyone's brought it up at the college level explicitly, but I don't, I don't think I would do that. Um, I just think it's too restrictive overall. But what my colleague and I saw, uh, Michael and I, uh, when we were at the Teal Foundation, he was the uh, head of grants uh, for the whole Teal Foundation and also worked on the Teal Capital side. But we got to see some really extraordinary things launch uh, during our time there. And so we were taking people into the fellowship when we really saw that they had potential uh, and they were just getting started on something. One way that I likened um, how we would pick people is it was people who had already decided to run a marathon. So mm-hmm. it was like these people you know, have, have sort of some semblance of a project they're working on. Maybe it's a startup, maybe it's a project, who knows? Um, and we're here to give them resources throughout, but it's like the really early days. It's like, you know, they're, they're in the first couple of miles of the marathon at most. And, uh, and we got to see some extraordinary things like, uh, Vitalik launched Ethereum out mm-hmm. of the fellowship. Um, my colleague, Michael put on Facebook, like, Hey, everybody, you know, buy some ether. We didn't buy any ether because we thought it would be a conflict of interest if we were like backing right. some other stuff, but not others. And so our friends have done very well. Um, you know, we, we have not done very well in, <laughs> in that regard, but it's like, damn it, conflict of interest. Why do we let that get in the yeah. way? Um, we have people like Ritesh Agarwal of Oyo mm-hmm. Room. Uh, which is a hotel chain uh, in Asia. And actually they just opened uh, or they're just opening their first hotel in uh, Vegas, actually, which is really interesting. But we knew Ritesh when he was, um, you know, just kind of a solo army uh, getting started. I remember doing video calls with him and he started out as like Airbnb in India. And so he'd be fluffing someone's pillows in the background while we'd be doing this review call Um And it was super early days. And now I think they have something like 10,000 employees. Uh, They're the biggest competitor to Marriott in India. 
they're doing extraordinarily well. The company's worth 10 billion at this point. And I remember when we had a hard time getting investors to even take a first meeting with him. And so that was one of our, our, um, that was some of the fuel actually for getting the fund started was we saw over time, over the first five years, we saw things like that. We saw Dylan field with Figma. Um, we saw Laura Deming launch her longevity fund mm-hmm. and we were always trying to make these connections to funding for people, but we found that it was hard to find investors who would do pre-seed uh, and no matter what a person's age, pre-seed investors are, are hard to find. Um, and because you have to be very, um, you have to have a high appetite for risk and you mm. have to have a very defined thesis if you're going to be that early when there's not a whole bunch of data points to go off of or like financial spreadsheets. And, and also, you know, people are skeptical about young people being capable, um, you know, to be leadership and operations teams of startups because oftentimes the founders we're working with have never even had a manager before. Right. And it's like, wow, oh, now you're going to jump into this. Yeah. Um, why, so why, we, why invest in people that right. are so young when most funds like turn away that, I mean, you guys even right. invest like a thousand dollars. It was like a Gary, uh, fairy godmother thing to, yes, yeah, that's a great, like. yeah, that's not even an investment. We'll, we'll give people a grant ju- just to help them get started. But mm-hmm. we've just seen that, you know, young people are really extraordinary. Um, they have a lot of energy. Um, they have new ways of thinking about things. Um, there's all kinds of benefits. I mean, even certain benefits, like, you know, they can crash on someone's couch and, you know, you're just considered a founder. You're not a bum if you're right. 20 years old crashing on someone's couch. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we've, we've talked to lots of founders, you know, who are in their thirties and they're married and they have children and it's like, it's a different, it's a different time of life and, and they have different needs. Um, but it was really from growing out the Teal Fellowship and working with those young people and seeing how hard it was for them to get funding that Michael and I actually went to Peter Teal. We had a breakfast with him and um, we didn't tell him what was on the agenda because he often doesn't give agendas before his mm-hmm. meeting. So we'll surprise him. Right. And uh, we were going in to leave our operational roles uh, and we had breakfast with him and we had this one page piece of paper that had eight companies on it that were doing very well out of the fellowship. We said, Hey, you know, we think there's a case to be made to start a venture fund to work with young people. We'd like your blessing to leave our operational roles. We think the fellowship is on rails and we can hand that off to go start this venture fund, um, you know, so that we can really work with people's companies uh, more fully instead of just as individuals with the grant. And he loved the idea. He got really excited um, and he committed to becoming an anchor investor on the spot, which mm-hmm. we weren't, we weren't pitching him for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I smiled so big that I covered my mouth. I was like, Oh my God, what the hell is happening right now? Um, and, uh, and that got us started. But, um, but yeah, we see, we see the fund as, you know, we're not an ed tech fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, a lot of people will come to me because I've been in education and be like, oh, I want to pitch you on this ed tech thing. And I always tell people I'm a really grumpy ed tech person <laughs> um, because when you've been in an industry, it's like, you know, too much and you know mm-hmm. how hard it is. Um, so it's, it's almost like hard to get excited about things because you're like, oh, that's going to take forever or, oh, selling into that group, that's going to be impossible. Or um, it's like if. Uh, I remember when I was going to people when I was starting my charter school, they were like, why would you want to do that? And it was like other charter school leaders I was talking to. And it's like, I was naive. I didn't know how much work it was going to take or how hard it would be or, you know, the blood, sweat and tears. Uh, And so there's something about being naive when you go into something that is actually very helpful because you don't know all the roadblocks that are come up. Um, But, um, but yeah, it was true with the fund as well. Like we didn't know, you know, how difficult would it be to set this up and all that? And we just kind of put one foot in front of the other and did it. Um, But we do think of the fund as having an educational mission of working with people who are off the beaten path, who are not getting, Mm -hmm. you know, who are getting their education through doing a startup rather than by getting a degree. Uh, And one of our founders said, um, you know, you all have financed the best education I've ever received. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's working in a hardware company. Um, He has a team, I think of probably about 10 people at this point. Uh, They're out in the market selling. And, you know, I always like to say reality is one of the best teachers um, because it's really, really honest. Like Mm -hmm. if you're not doing well uh, in something like, you know, an entrepreneurial venture, you get that feedback really fast. Or if you don't get that feedback fast, because you're sort of delusionally thinking to yourself, like, no, this is totally working. Like when you do finally hit pavement, you hit really hard. Um, And and so the learnings are, are quite deep. 
So one of the things, um, one of the top jobs, like as a founder is to basically hold and consistently communicate your vision to others to really inspire action. Um, And in your guys's case, like that's inspiring funding from you, you know, for more experienced founders, they have usually a track record or something behind them that they can bring to that table. But how do young founders who this is their first company, their first everything, how do they communicate their vision to inspire that action? Sure. That's a great question. Um, we see people do this in two ways. And one way we see is a successful way to do it. And one we see is one that we feel is an uninspired way to do it. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with the uninspired way to get that out of the way, which is sometimes we'll have people come to us and they'll say, oh, you know, I I noticed there's this potential market in X. I did some research on it. That's It seems true. Um, so I'm building a company off of it. So it's like they saw a hole in the market somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, they see sort of the dollar signs that form <laughs> like the cartoon ones. Right. And it's going to be a business. And the thing that I always tell people about starting with that kind of model is that building a company is too hard to do it just for the money mm-hmm. um, because the payout of the money is also so long term that you can't you can't be like driven by that aspect of it so much. It really needs to be that you have a passion and inspiration. We often will say, um, you know, founders need to be willing to die on their sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it really has to be something mission critical to you because you're not gonna, you're not gonna spend like five to 10 years on something, you know, and if there is some form of a payout, it's not gonna be, unless it's some sort of quick flip, it's not gonna be for five to 10 years. Um, you're not going to get through the first two years of the slog of fundraising, of building the team, of the emotional ups and downs that you're inevitably going to go through on a moment by moment basis. It's like you get an email from someone that's great. You're like, oh my God, I'm on top of the world. And then like you have to fire someone and you're like, oh my God, I'm on the bottom. Like, <laughs> and it's just like this very manic cycle. Um, you're not going to make it through that un- unless you have soul and skin in the game. Um, so the founders that we get, most jazzed about working with when they're telling sort of this story tend to have some sort of personal connection uh, to what they're doing. And uh, I was, uh, I was helping an accelerator do some pitch feedback the other day. And this one founder was telling me about uh, a business that he's building. And I, I'm always sort of looking for like, okay, where's, how does this founder click into this story? Like, why is this founder doing it? Um, and this guy was talking about making a uh, a platform for like individual business owners where it's like, it's not even really like a smaller, medium sized business. It's, it's like a, um, yeah, yeah. It's like a contractor type or con- someone who's doing consulting, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do they get their business off the ground and how do they get all the tools for it? And this person sort of wrapped all these tools together. And at the end I said, you know, why are you like, why are you doing this? Like, why did, you know, how did you get into this? And he's like, well, and it's funny, I could tell he felt a little bashful telling me, but he started going to this story of how he was talking to his friend's mom and his friend's mom. I don't remember what sort of business she had, but she was having a lot of trouble figuring out like how to incorporate and coming up on tax time. And how do you fund tax account? How do you do this? And he started researching and pulling together all these resources for her and was noticing like, wow, this is kind of ridiculous that I need to pull from all these resources all over the place. Maybe there could be one platform for this, but it was really that personal connection of working with his friend's mother and sort of seeing like, wow, like, yeah, how was she going to figure this out, um, you know, without extra help and support that drove him into it. But it was interesting to me, too, that this founder definitely had this bashfulness of like, well, you know, it came from this little thing. To me, that little thing is the biggest thing. Right. Um, That's like the reason that you're going to stay up late at night working on it. It's why you're going to get up early and get going. It's what's, you know, that that story, that narrative is what's going to get your feet on the ground in the morning and get you racing. And so we look for that a lot. We look for that personal connection within an industry and not just, um, Oh, I found a neat market opportunity. Like that market opportunity has to be there. Like, you know, we have to irrationally believe that every single one of the 46 companies that we've backed could be the company that returns the entire fund, which is totally delusional thinking, but that's (laughs) how we have to think about things. Um, you know, but we need to see that those founders are going to be able to go through the dark night of the soul with their companies when things aren't good. And it's that being like passionately connected piece that's going to do it. 
Yeah, I think the other thing too is that you guys talk about is who that founder is as a person. So you have a litmus test um, of would you want to spend Thanksgiving dinner with this person for the next 10 years? So yeah. how, how do founders present their best self in, in an authentic way? Yep, that's a great question. You know, different investors are different. And so like the advice I'm going to offer probably, you know, is certainly what works for me and maybe mm-hmm. works for some other pre-seed investors. I, I noticed in the ecosystem, pre-seed investors, we're doing it also because we really, um, we tend to have like a mission as part of our fund. Um, you know, most pre-seed investors, we're not, we're not getting paid big bucks. <laughs> Um, if anything, some of us are going into debt, doing what we're doing. We're like, Oh, so, you know, someday that payout will happen, but it's the mission right. that like keeps us going. Um, and so for me, when I'm thinking about founders that I want to work with, I do think about authenticity a lot. Um, I do think about where are their narratives and stories coming from? Um, one of the things I like to see is that like the people are interesting to talk to in general, where it's like mm-hmm. different topics come up and one second we're talking about their startup and the next second we're talking about something totally different. Um, that's always fun to get to know people on that level. Um, one thing that's really important to us is that founders aren't trying to use sales techniques to like mm-hmm. close the deal. One of, one of my belief systems in general in life is how people behave in one scenario is how they behave in all scenarios. Absolutely. Um, I found that this actually tends to be pretty true. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. very open at being wrong in certain areas, but overall it is. And we've had founders who will come in and start using sort of FOMO sales techniques. Like we had a, we had a group with, that we went through diligence on. I loved what they were working on. It's really interesting work. I liked the founders um, when we did a customer diligence call that went swimmingly, but the only problem was that every time we met with these founders, they were always like sliding in these FOMO tactics. <laughs> and you can tell that people have like read a book and they're like using it. They haven't fully integrated how to use, um, sort of pressure in an authentic way. Cause I think pressure is important and it's useful, but, you, but if you're doing it in the like, Oh, I just read on page 50 to like, right this into the conversation it just comes off really slimy and so these founders would do things like say oh well you know this other group's you know going to give us a term sheet on friday and so that that's just going to count you guys out (laughs) we're like that's not how it works at pre-seed like everyone comes in for a piece it's not like it's not like a series a where someone takes 80 or 90 percent of a round it's that you know someone takes like five or ten percent and goes from there and, uh, and so they were doing that. And, and every time we met, it was something like that. And I, I did this write up at the end and I said, listen, um, everything has gone so well, but I'm really nervous for your leadership capacity mm-hmm. because if you're treating us like this, then I'm nervous about you treating your customers like this, your employees like this. Um, and that doesn't bode well. Um, right. And I said, you know, I'd love to keep in touch on what you're doing. I'd like, I'd love to help out further. Um, but I just can't, I can't feel good putting our investors money into your company, knowing that you're using all these tactics. And I said, you know, it, to me, it would have been more authentic if you had said, Hey, we need to hire someone, um, you know, by Friday and we're going to lose them if we don't do it. And they wrote me back and they were like, yeah, no, we have been using tactics. I'm like, duh, like it's very obvious that you've been using tactics. Um, and they said, we actually do have someone we'd want to hire and we are going to lose them. Like, you know, very soon if we're not able to. And I was like, Hey, I appreciate the honesty, but like a little, little too late to be honest with me right now. Um, so we look for that a lot. And, and, uh, yeah, that's just like really important because we're pretty authentic with our founders too. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're fundraising and we'll tell them what it's like for us. And we're always going back and forth on stuff. And so, you know, one of many litmus test questions is that, um, you know, would we want to spend 10 years having Thanksgiving dinner with this person. Um, and it's, it's a good one because you're working with people really hard and really long. And right. if you have the sense of like, Oh, this person's kind of a jerk or something like that, you're not going to want to put your all into their company either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a, a big part of that, I mean, we were talking about passion earlier, but when you're working with that person for 10 years, seeing that passion basically throughout, you know, stay throughout those 10 years and kind of, feeding into and feeding off of that. Um, yep. What does it really mean for you to follow your passion? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. 
You know, it's interesting. So I, I want to do like a caveat on this question. One of the things that I think is kind of dangerous is that a lot of people will be like, follow your passion to right. young people. And I have a really big like complaint about that, which is that I think it can get people into trouble because like we live in an ecosystem and we live in a culture and that it do, that doesn't mean that, you know, it can't be changed or shouldn't be different or something like that. But like, we all need to support ourselves and, and be able to like, you know, put food on the table and, you know, maybe someone's passion is activism and they're like, I hate how the economy works and I want to change that. Um, but right now I'm going to assume that, you know, most, most people aren't in that sort of um, activism space. Um, but I've seen a lot of, um, you know, sort of like memes out there of like, Oh, follow your passion. I'm like, yeah, okay. If your passion is horseback riding, that's wonderful but you need to find a way to like have that then support you, mm -hmm. um, you know, and put food on the table and be able to make a meaningful career out of it or do something else and feel like it is supporting you to do something as a hobby. Um, so I think it's, um, I think passions are really important, but I also think it's really important for people to be able to support themselves and to thrive and not have their passion sort of like drown them out of life. Um, so when I think about now, your question was, say your question again, what does it mean for you to follow your passion? Mm, man, that's a good question. I'm like, no one has ever asked me that before. I guess, I guess what that means to me is that, um, yeah, like if you're, if you're following your passion, like to me, I think of a passion as a calling, mm -hmm. um, it's that thing that gets you up in the morning and drives everything you do. And I guess to me, something about following your passion also has to do with values alignment. It's right. not just something like that is fun, but like, I don't know, has like a, a like a deep seated. A yeah. yeah, exactly. And that it could be something that is also like really fun. Like, I don't know if you've seen free solo, mm -hmm. but um, man, that, and that film, um, my palms were sweating throughout <laughs> the entire thing, but it's clear to me that he is like this deep, uh, I don't even, I think passion isn't even deep enough of a word, but he's like a deep passion obsession with the climbing and figuring out the roots and like being precise and things like that. It's clearly ties into his values a lot. It's not just like some fun hobby that he does. Right. Um, so I do think it needs to be tied into sort of values and vision. Uh, and that is maybe what separates like a true passion from something that's just kind of a hobby. Yeah. I uh, think that um, the word that you brought up was calling. And I think that's an important um, in understanding that, you know, like with the free solo, having that deep calling with inside him to do that um, right. and then finding the things that can allow you to take that calling. So, you know, being able to put food on the table and whatnot. I'm not yeah. just doing things that are fun, but things that can allow you to take that calling. Um, yeah. Cause I mm. think, I think what happens is when people follow their passion and then their passion basically, you know, takes a downturn on their life and now they really can't follow their passion because they can't even live. Right. No, that's a great way to say it. I was thinking about something like that as I was thinking it through of like the thing you're doing has to be, um, there has to be like, I'm, I'm wanting to make a cycle like with my, my hand here of like, there has to be like something you're sort of like getting out of it and then giving into it. Right. Because it feeds back in just taking from you and you're not able to like get back from it in some, mm -hmm. some sense, then yeah, you're not going to have the resources to keep doing it. Um, whether that's like that resource could be like time or energy or, or funding or all kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, so the MVP for 1517 was a t-shirt and basically the thesis that you guys had when yeah. taking down to LA hacks. And yeah. so, you know, going along this line of passion and going what, after what you want, how do people take the leap with their ideas, even in the smallest way possible? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and yet again, hats off <laughs> to you for all, all the research you've done. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've always been a big believer in like, sort of like put your toes in before taking the big leap in the pond or the right. ocean sort of thing. And so even when I started my tutoring company, actually, I remember I posted Craigslist ads before Craigslist. It was way before Craigslist was creepy. Um, you could post things <laughs> on there and, and have people not think you were doing something else. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll just leave it at that. But uh, 
but I remember I posted ads in San Diego because I was thinking about uh, moving there. I was dating mm -hmm. someone at the time who lived in San Diego and I thought, oh, well, let me put some Craigslist ads up and see, you know, what the, what the market sort of will bear. And like, I didn't have those words for it. Like I didn't, I also didn't know what like AB testing was or any of this, but I was trying different ads out and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, and people started responding and, uh, and I thought, oh, wow. Okay. This is interesting. It's, it does seem like, you know, I'd be able to start this tutoring company there. Um, and same thing with 1517, we had this idea for it. We hadn't even pitched Peter yet on it, but we wanted to test it a little bit. So we were supposed to go to LA hacks as the Teal fellowship. Um, and I remember I was sitting in my colleague's apartment and we were sort of like brainstorming, you know, how could we get this thing started? And it just dawned on me like, oh, we could print two t-shirts off Zazzle for like way too high a price each. It was like 18 bucks t-shirt or something like that. Uh, maybe it was more like 25. I don't remember. But yeah, we could print two t-shirts. Um, we knew we wanted the name to be 1517. Uh, we just went through the fonts and we're like, what's an old font? Like, mm. let's just find it. Like, you know, it was like, oh, Gaudi old style is pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. sure. That And that's remained our font to this day. Um, and yeah, we printed two t-shirts. He was going down to LA Hacks uh, and they gave him a couple minutes on stage as sponsor for the Teal Foundation, but he pitched 1517. It was about a thousand young people in the audience. And uh, he gave the story about Martin Luther nailing the theses to the church door and how, you know, it was bullshit to have to buy this piece of paper to absolve you of your sins. And it's bullshit to have to buy a piece of paper to be called an educated person. Yeah. And the crowd just went nuts. Like just, whoa, cheers, crazy. Um, it blew up on Twitter as well, which was weird for us because, you know, we'd been at the foundation for five years and we had never gotten that response from mm. the fellowship. The reason for that was that people loved the mission of the fellowship, but they also knew only 20 people are going to get this per year. Right. Um, you know, so you could like, be part of what we were doing, but only so few could be a Teal Fellow. And when we pitched 1517, we still have the picture of the tweet. This one young woman tweeted out, count me as part of the movement, bro. And like tagged <laughs> Michael in it. And we we're like, movement, where are we? Fund? Like, that's so awesome. Like, this is exactly like what we want, not in like a manipulative way, but in right. like a, yes, like we want people to resonate with this. You know, and we want to be able to show people that this can have large financial benefit as well yeah. over time. Um, and so, yeah, we took that small step. It was after going to LA Hacks that we then went to Peter and sort of pitched, hey, we want to leave our jobs to do this. Um, and so I always tell people, oftentimes when I'm talking uh, to founders, they'll have this huge vision for what they want to do. And I'm like, so, but what are you going to do on Friday? And they're like, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, okay, like, let's figure that out. I think mm -hmm. sort of adage of just putting one foot in front of the other has been very true throughout my whole life. I've been very good at scaffolding things for myself of like, okay, if I want to get to here, I can sort of work backwards and think, okay, on Friday, I need to do this. I need to email these people. I need to mm -hmm. get on the phone. I need to build this thing. Um, you know, and go from there. And that's what I always sort of try to recommend people is like, do the smallest thing you can that also gives you feedback. Mm. Uh, so it's like putting an ad on Craigslist for me when I was starting my tutoring company was like, okay, I'm taking an action. I'm getting feedback. Okay. I'm taking action, getting feedback, um, doing the t-shirt for 15, 17, getting on stage, getting a lot of cheers. That was feedback. Um, so it's just like doing that as much as possible and always trying to listen to it. And I'll say like, sometimes listening to feedback is really hard. We've been fundraising for our second fund. Uh, and sometimes we were noticing like we're getting some of the same questions from people or sometimes disbelief about working with young people and things like that. And we weren't kind of getting the message of like, we need to iterate on how we message ourselves. Um, so more recently, like we redesigned our deck, we've started messaging differently and it's working better, but it was our own resistance that kept us being like, well, those people just don't get it. Like that's their problem. And then it's like, okay, we're hearing it enough times that it's actually our problem. Yeah. And now we need to do something about it. Yeah. Um, which is a tough pill to swallow because sometimes you're like, blah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's true. So yeah, I always just tell people like, try to do the smallest thing possible that gets you some amount of feedback. Um, I think the other important thread that comes through your story and the things that you've done is this idea of going against the grain. And this, these are the type of people that you're supporting. Um, so yep. how do you do that 
you know, confidently? And how have you had the courage to do it in your own life? Let's see. Like, how do I have confidence in people who are going against the grain was sort of the first part of the question. Um, well, how do you, how have you had the confidence to do it? Because, you know, you. Oh, myself. Yeah. Okay. You know, I think some of that goes back to childhood, actually. Both my mm-hmm. parents uh, are small business owners. And I just always grew up in this family where it's like you made your own money. You sort of did your own thing. You weren't taking orders from somebody else. And so I think there was something where that was just kind of normal um, for, for my growing up. Um, and I think also because I tend to take those like little experiments of like, Oh, I'll put a Craigslist ad up. up. We'll make a t-shirt. There's not some huge failure point. Like if, mm. if I put a Craigslist ad up and nobody responds, I'm not like, it's not like I built a whole website and told all my friends I'm starting a tutoring company. And then I had no customers and then the whole thing failed. Like, it's right. like, Oh, I put an ad up and I saw what happened. Um, and so there might be something to where to me, it doesn't feel like there are parts of it that feel like a big leap. Like I still remember the feeling of moving to San Diego and getting on the plane. Sometimes things for me aren't real until it's like the moment. It's like thinking about moving to San Diego. I was like, oh, okay, I'm moving to San Diego. But it was like, I was sitting on the plane. I was like, oh my God, I'm actually moving to San Diego. Like, um, and that, that might be actually a helpful trait for me to have. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't know, getting too worried about things beforehand but yeah for some reason i've i've always been able to take that kind of leap within a sort of like the working world what's interesting for me though is like i uh like some people are really big into like physical risk taking and they're like i'm going to do this sport or i'm going to jump off this thing i am so not <laughs> that person. like i'm a huge wuss in mm. certain areas and so that's been interesting for me where in some areas of my life People are like, you're so courageous. You did this thing. Hey, do you want to get on the back of my motorcycle? I'm like, no, <laughs> like, no, don't want to do that. Oh, want to start a business with me? Sure. No problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of interesting to me that it's, it's not the same across areas. It's like, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of courage in certain areas and almost none in other areas. Yeah. That's, maybe, maybe talking this out with you, maybe it's about that scaffolding of like, oh, I need to, you know, actually a friend of mine did this to me. He's like, do you want to just sit on my motorcycle? And yeah, I was like, sure. there you go. <laughs> and, I did and then he's like, how about if I, and like a, two days later, he's like, how about if I like turn it on while you're sitting on it? And I was like, sure. And eventually he got me to go around the block mm. on and I'd never done it before. So they actually, you're helping me put together some parallels here of like, oh, maybe I just need that little feedback cycle to get me to do the physical things. And I've always thought with the physical things, like, no, you just have to be scared shitless and get on the back of the motorcycle. Um, and that's maybe not how it works. Yeah. I think that taking those small steps, making the stakes not seem so big, it's a lot easier to take that, that leap. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. This uh, is good. Now I got to go do some physical risk taking. Yeah, there you go. Break it down into the pieces that I can get there. Yeah. Um, so some of the, most important things that matter um, as characteristics, as we're talking about characteristics for the pre-seed stage is things like character, execution, emotional intelligence, creativity. And my question is, is these are soft skills that not necessarily every person has. So how could we start teaching these things a lot earlier? Yeah, man, that's a great question. Ooh, you know, I think um, there's a great book that I read called Peak um, that's all about uh, practice, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the book uh, is written by the researcher uh, who has the study about doing 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, um, which Malcolm Gladwell actually bastardized in his book. Uh, and actually, my theory about why the book peak was written was because the author of this paper was probably really pissed that Malcolm Gladwell got famous off this other guy's research and bastardized it Mm. by just being sure 10,000 hours. It's not just 10,000 hours. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. But one thing they talk about in that book a lot is uh, it's often through taking up a sport or music or some, some sort of passion or hobby that someone is putting a lot of time into that people develop these sort of, you know, what people often call soft skills. I call them core skills, actually. These are super important. Um, And uh, and people get them through learning how to overcome through 
a challenge that they're having. Mm. Um, so I'm a really big proponent of things like project-based learning. Right. I'm a big proponent of, um, you know, young people taking up, whether it's an art or a sport or something like that, where like mastery is important, like gaining a skill to a place of mastery is really important. I think there's so much in school where it's like, oh, we'll just do the good enough level and that's fine. And then you move on to the next thing. Um, so I guess, yeah, I would say, I think it's really important for young people to have a sense of mastery in something. And it's not just being good at it, but it's about overcoming the challenges to get even better at it. Mm. Um, and so we look for that uh, in the founders we work with and we'll often ask them about their sort of earlier childhood lives of like, oh, hey, did you do music? Did you do sports? Like, did you do this? Um, did you have a lemonade stand growing up? Like things mm -hmm. like this, um, you know, and, and seeing from there. And, and some of this is, is somewhat problematic because, you know, uh, it's uh, these types of extracurriculars are expensive. Like my family growing up, you know, had a hard time making these things happen, you know, but they did and not every family can afford these types of things. And so it's also looking at, well, were there other things that, you know, this kid was geeking out at, right. out, out at home? Were they making up games all the time? Um, you know, were they kicking around a soccer ball in the backyard and, and, you know, sort of started teaching themselves and, uh, and going from there. But I, I do think that um, I, I do think, I wish, I wish every child could have the experience of, of moving towards mastery in something. Um, mm. I think that's just really, really important um, overall. And I feel like there's another thought percolating here a little bit of that. I think we just stifle young people a lot um, in terms of that there's like in mastery, there is a right way to do something. There's sort of this interesting balance of like in mastery, there is definitely a right way to do something and like there's technique and things like that. But on the other side, there's also like, creativity and trying new things and right. sort of experimenting and seeing what works. And I think sometimes these things can be at odds with each other, or mm. sometimes you'll find people who have hit a very high level of mastery, but then I can't, there's, there's a word for this, but um, there's a point at which you have mastery, but then you can also break all the rules and you right. start getting like really creative with what you're doing. I mean, you look at, you know, some of the great artists um, like Picasso was uh, classically uh, a, he was trained in classical realism. If you look at some of his earlier work, it is just exquisite. Um, but he jumps off the deep end at one point and says, you know what, I'm going to do it this other way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and some, some would say that maybe you could start on the creative end and go there, but some would say you have to reach mastery and then break all the rules to get that creative piece going. So I think, I think there's some interesting concepts in there. Um, but yeah, to answer your, your question, I, I think, uh, mastery of a skill would be a great way for people to build up these types of meta learning skills inside themselves and those core skills that we talked about. Yeah. In order to gain that mastery, like it, it's going to take a long time and you and your talk presented a quote that I'll read is propel students into globally engaged citizens as adults by furthering their education through meaningful work and accelerating their learning regularly. So what would building a lifelong learning education education system look like you know so i'm having new thoughts about this recently where mm -hmm. i actually i don't think education is going to be the place where people like i don't think i'll say it this way i don't think school is going to be the place where people really understand lifelong learning mm -hmm. um, i think everything stems out of hiring institutions because mm -hmm. even school is based on like oh well you have to be able to get this good job which means you have to have gone to a good college which means you have to have gone to a good high school which means you you know, have to go, yeah, you know, San Francisco, it's insane. Like one of our investors has a child in preschool and they're like, Oh my God, what preschool are they going to go to? I'm like, that is, that's insane. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, um, but, um, and part of me is like, I hope it's a play-based preschool, <laughs> not the flash call. Right. Um, but, um, but I think what's going to happen over time. And I think we're seeing this is that our work is going to require of us that we be lifelong learners. Um, mm -hmm. you know, 
when people say today, oh, I've had this job for two years, people are like, oh, wow, long time. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> that was never the case in the past. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know, people people had jobs or people had jobs even like throughout their families. It's like, you know, right. if your father was a farmer, you were in the farming business, period. Like, so there's like this generational aspect. And now people think it's a long time that you held a job if you were there for two years. Um, so I think what's going to happen over time is that people are going to think of educate, educating themselves um, for whatever the new role is that they want or whatever they want to grow into. I have a friend who's in his 40s and he's getting really interested in machine learning and he's been a programmer for a very long time. And um, he's like, and it's funny, he, he has some um, hesitation. He's like, oh, I'm not really sure if I should apply to this, you know, job at like OpenAI or I don't know if I'm going to be good enough. And he's like an extraordinary human <laughs> and he's really bright and creative and great learner and things like that. Um, but I do think that sort of mindset of, okay, I'm going to start like learning this new skill set, or maybe it's going to be that every few years people go into a boot camp to learn something, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you go like a four month boot camp where you're like, you know what, I really want to try the marketing side of things. So I'm going to go into this boot camp and then I'm going to go apply it somewhere. Um, so I do think it's actually going to be hiring institutions that actually instill this love of learning and like our work. Um, and then that trickles down to education in school. Um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of lip service paid to lifelong learning in school, but school doesn't offer the flexibility or the freedom to really feel that love for it. If everything's a have to. Yeah. I think it comes down to what you want in life and then, you know, learning around that you guys also in your 95 theses, you say at the very last one, education ought to be a mission, not merely to instruct the world, but to liberate it. So what does yep. it actually mean for this learning that you're doing to liberate yourself and then liberate the world? Yeah, great question. And I, I like to give credit where credit is due. Michael wrote our 95 mm-hmm. theses. He locked himself like in the woods somewhere, like <laughs> had a Thoreau moment and, uh, and decided to... Uh, to draft that first draft. Michael's really funny when he writes, he needs to do it himself and then Mm. he'll show people and then you go and edit it, but you do not get to see a lick of it until he thinks that first draft is done. Um, You know, but, um, but we do think that education should be something that liberates people and and sets them free into the future, like wherever they're going to go. Um, And this is sort of reminding me of your question earlier of like, you know, like following passion and things like that. It's like, well, what does it mean to be liberated? Mm-hmm. Um, you could be liberated and go live out in the middle of the woods and be really disconnected, or you can be liberated and be like really, really connected. And I don't know, I don't know that one of those things is better than the other. I think it depends on, you know, uh, on the, on the individual, but, um, but yeah, I'm just thinking about that concept of, of being liberated. I guess when I think about liberation, I think about being at choice, Um, and I think about that in a very, maybe like deep interpersonal way of like, I think all of us tend to have habits and patterns of how we do things. Um, or like, um, you know, I, I study, uh, certain Eastern philosophies. I'm pretty into Taoism and, uh, and people talk about responding instead of reacting. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you're liberated, you're responding to things and you're really at choice and like, Hey, like, okay this thing happened and now I get to choose what my next step is instead of this thing happened. Okay. A happened. Now I do B. It's a a different, um, yeah, it's just a more conscientious way I think of, of going about things. So when I think about liberation, that's what, that's what comes to mind is, you know, someone being able to wake up much like you did and say, Oh, wow, what I'm doing is not what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. I don't need to just keep doing this and, uh, reacting to my job and just keep doing it because I'm supposed to. It's like, no, I'm going to respond to this and take whatever the next right action is for me. Mm. Um, and that's going to be very personal. Absolutely. Well, I love the talk that we've been having, but before I get to my last question, where can everybody find you in the 1517 fund? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Email me anytime, Danielle at 1517fun.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, just my name. Um, let's see, 1517fun.com. We've got our website. We have a contact form there. Um, yeah, we like to be really open and um, approachable. So yeah, reach out anytime. Awesome. Well, yeah. my, my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? 
You know, I think pushing the world to evolve maybe goes back to what we were just talking about, about liberation of like people being able to really be thoughtful and respond to things instead of reacting to things. Um, I mean, I certainly see a lot of reaction in our political climate today. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of, a lot of sort of like, sort of push and pull uh, all over the place. And and I think, yeah, I think to evolve, it means that we need to be more conscientious and thoughtful and respond. And maybe that means that we also need to slow down a bit um, because I think it takes some time to be able to respond, whereas reaction is a, a habitual response. Um, yeah, taking the time to think about like, hey, what's the right next path for me? Is it college? Is it grad school? Is it mm-hmm. this job that I just got an acceptance for? Um, should I try something different? Um, I think that that would be a, I think that'd be a really good step for the world. And I'm, you know, I'm working on this myself. There's places where I get reactionary and always like, oh man, like I could do better <laughs> over there. Um, so it's uh, it's hard work, but I think it's really beneficial. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's an ever going process. Like you, you are going to keep evolving and adapting and growing. And I think that's really what it means to be a human. Um, yes, totally agree. Yeah, I don't think there's a place where you get to like the zenith and you're like, oh, I'm done. Like, mm-hmm. I, I even look back, like I'll look back on old emails or old like chat conversations from 10 plus years ago. And I've even written apologies to people. Where I'm like, oh my God, I was like, I was so like X, whatever the trade is. Sorry about that. <laughs> like, I I couldn't see it at the time, but you right. know, here I'm 10 years older and oof. Well, thank you so much, Danielle, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. And, uh... Yeah, this was awesome. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.